Have you ever thought to yourself, why can't I find what I'm searching for? Me too. I expect brands and retailers to make search relevant and make recommendations that are aligned with my preferences and buying history. That means being my shopping guide and surprising me with items I didn't even know I needed. For retailers, this is what Coveo's AI-powered search delivers. By learning from every website visit and query, Coveo builds insights and profiles that predict relevant suggestions for each visitor, often before they've even started searching. Learn about how Coveo can help increase your online conversion rates, basket size, and repeat traffic by visiting Coveo.com. That's C-O-V-E-O.com. Hello, welcome to the Retail Rundown Podcast. I'm your host, Julia Raymond-Hare. Joining me today are Jenny O oh and Shannon Ryan. Jenny is the General Manager of Tech Venturing and Innovation at PepsiCo Labs, where she leads Pep Labs to drive innovation through partnerships with leading, cutting-edge startups focusing on solving critical business needs for PepsiCo. Shannon is the Executive Vice President of North America for Valtech, where he helps leadership teams map, understand, and execute digital strategy, mostly in the world of retail, CPG, and B2B. Jenny, Shannon, thank you for being here today. Jenny's title sounds way better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds cool, too. No, um, thank you like, for having us. Super yeah. excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have both of you because today we're going to have our listeners get a sneak peek of the insights that you'll be covering during the upcoming event. It's Valtech's annual ANOVA, and decision makers of leading brands and organizations will be sharing their insights on lots of topics, but specifically innovation, business transformation, and digital performance. So if you're listening, this is online over two days, October 7th and 8th. It's no cost to register, and I'll provide you with more details at the end of the show where you can find the registration link in the podcast description. Jenny, will you kick us off by telling a little bit about the work you do in Pep Labs and how PepsiCo approaches innovation? Yeah, I'd love to. So I lead Pep Labs across a number of functions globally for PepsiCo. And what we do is partner with our different business areas to really understand our critical needs and where we may have some capability gaps. And then we go out looking for the right tech solutions focusing on startups. So we run programs for these startups and they're less of the typical accelerator programs and much more geared towards finding solutions and testing them through pilots and then commercializing and scaling up the solutions in our business. If you think about the PepsiCo value chain and, you know, we operate pretty much across that whole spectrum going all the way from agriculture through manufacturing, supply chain, marketing, retail execution, and all the way through to insights and data analytics. So cover a pretty broad area, but we really like to focus on our biggest opportunities so that we can make an impact on our business, which, as you mentioned, is pretty large. Absolutely. And you mentioned you run programs for startups and you find solutions and eventually scale some of these. Can you give any example off the cuff of one that you guys have scaled? Yeah, we've scaled quite a few, actually, in the three years that we've been around. So we're still a relatively nascent capability at PepsiCo, but we've already put more than 100 pilots into market. We're scaling up more than 15 solutions with a healthy pipeline behind that. We've scaled up a number of solutions across 
digital marketing, as well as insights, a few in manufacturing. So there are, you know, a good number of solutions that are already being scaled within the PepsiCo system. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> 100 pilots into the market. I actually want to ask a question to Jenny, too. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, given that breadth of experience, is there anything that you've been able to glean across the spectrum of those companies that you've brought into the ecosystem that stands out to you as being real, either really unique in terms of the areas that they're focusing on, some sort of DNA trait of all of the founders? Is there something that really jumps out at you that says, this is kind of the fairy dust that you're looking for to make it all work? Yeah, I mean, to date in our model, we like to focus on startups that do have a proven product in market. So less of the early seed stage companies. So if I yeah. talk about stage of companies, we're probably more focused on late to A to B and companies with a proven product that they're ready to commercialize and scale up. In terms of the areas, there are so many amazing startups out there, but we like to stay focused on what our needs are. Of course, we leave some areas open because we only know what we know and you know we want to learn during the process as well. But at the same time, we like to stay anchored on our biggest opportunities and what we perceive to be our biggest needs. So those are in terms of the areas that we look at. In terms of the startups themselves, you know, really the ones that, of course, have a unique and differentiated technology and something that's advantage versus other solutions that we might see in the space. But beyond that, I mean, a willingness to partner. PepsiCo, you know, while we have been set up to enable us to be agile and flexible. We still are a large company and we are a matrixed organization. And often in a decision-making process or initiative, we need a number of stakeholders on board. And the startups that are willing to be a little bit, willing to adapt a little bit and work with us through those partnerships. And, you know, it works to the benefit of both of us. You know, we're really about through these tech partnerships, we're trying to go beyond the typical vendor relationship and really create a deep strategic partnership where we can grow value together. So not only does it move the needle for PepsiCo, but in turn, it usually leads to a significant benefit for the startup as well. Do you engage them as an investor or as a vendor? A bit of both. So, you know, our primary focus is strategic, but we do do select investments where it makes strategic sense for us. So we won't do investments just for financial reasons alone, but, you know, where it makes sense because we're developing something together or whether we need to have some input into their product development process or roadmap, we do do small investments. You know, it's an interesting segue to, I think, one of the principal collection of threats that many organizations are facing as we move forward into the new, you know, I want to say new digital era, but it's not that new, but the idea of the increasing digitization. And there's this challenge that I think many organizations are facing, which is coming back to people process and technology, but the people side in for sure, right? We just can't seem to get, you know, there's lots of conversation about war for talent and being able Mm -hmm. to find those great minds to be able to drive the business forward. And so starting up something like an innovation lab inside an organization is a great way to inject that thinking into your organization. And it's something that we see many of our clients also looking to explore I think where they wrestle with it is the innovation evolution or revolutionary that they're trying to bring into the organization. Do they just want incremental change or are they really trying to make a dent in the universe in that way? PepsiCo, though, given its size, 
you can span all facets of that conversation, correct? Yeah, I think so. And there are different stages of that as well. I think, um, you know, if you try to do a revolution from day one, you're most likely going to be met with resistance. I think the first step for us is this model that's worked so well for us and that we've really entrenched into the business over the past three years. But we're constantly thinking about how we ourselves as PepsiCo Labs can evolve as well. So what does our future vision like in the next three to five years? Are we going to go more into incubation and co-developed, maybe doing startups internally? So exploring all different areas as we think about our own evolution to lead the revolution within our company. Shannon, you mentioned the people process and technology aspects of having true innovation. And then I also think that there's another interesting point you guys were talking about revolution or an evolution. Can you think of any examples recently that you would consider a revolution? I don't know whether or not I would go so far as to call it a revolution. What I do know is that the pace of change in many of the organizations that we deal with at Valtech has exponentially increased due to COVID and the Mm -hmm. global pandemic. And what I would suggest is that many of the conversations I had in a pre-COVID period around the executive team's understanding of the time horizon to implement change was dramatically shortened from what it was in the beginning of 2019. So in 2019, you would hear things around a three to five year roadmap. Almost half of the playbook of that three to five year roadmap was probably attempted in the previous 12 months because they needed to inject that level of digital innovation, touch point, efficiency into their business triggered by the global pandemic and their necessity of changing the model. What I hope it's done is created a muscle memory of leadership teams that risk trial testing is actually a viable strategy moving forward. And you don't need to have a completely thought out and articulated strategy to move the organization forward. I think you're totally right in terms of speed of change and how things are evolving. And I don't think things are necessarily going to slow down post-COVID either, if there ever is a (laughs) post-COVID. Yes. But, you know, um, to your point, I think a lot of it has to do with being able to test in a very flexible way and being okay to fail, which is part of what our ethos is and our group. So we put these pilots into our business in a matter of weeks after meeting a startup, as opposed to, you know, typical months that it might take to, you know, in the past, move a large CPG company towards putting something in market. And while I think we like to say initially we were breaking the rules and our processes that we had internally, I think we've now bent them so that we've made our own and adapted our processes so that we can put more of a bubblegum pilot into market quickly. And then we can quickly determine whether it works for us or not. And if it doesn't, I wouldn't count that as a fail. And I don't think our organization does either. It was a huge learning and then we move on. So I think your point about agility is a big one. My thinking on agility, what's worked for us and may not work for everyone is to have a little structure to support that agility. Because if you just go in and say, okay, I'm going to be agile, I'm going to do anything. It doesn't work in a big company like PepsiCo. So we've set up certain structures and processes that have actually enabled us to be flexible and agile. And I think often people think about those words as being the 
antithesis of each other. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I 100% agree, even in what you mentioned before with regards to how you handle investment into the groups that you are working with in the pilot phases, you don't just do investment for monetary gains, right? Even having that as kind of a, a North Star or prime directive that allows you to keep that focus in the right areas, I think is, is critical. You don't need to overscript it, but you do need to have a few guardrails to say, this is how we're going to continue to play down the lane. Yeah, I mean, on that investment topic, I don't think we are necessarily the experts in just investing behind financial reasons. And there's a lot of money out there where startups can get funding. What they're looking for from us is industry expertise and ability to scale globally, which we both want to provide. The funding is an add-on where it makes strategic sense. Yeah, I find it interesting, you know, again, taking it back to the conference of ANOVA and the lineup of speakers and all the rest of it, it's really interesting that in many ways, the catch-all of innovation is used as permission to try things and permission to fail. And if you can wrap it in an innovation lab, or you can wrap it inside the context in some of the big companies of, you know, it's what R&D used to be in some ways in many of these organizations, which is we're going to try to do things. They could fail, but they're still a success, but you need to keep it contained in the framework of either an innovation lab or an R&D lab, because that's the only place where failure is tolerated. But it's becoming more and more accepted that this is the way to actually move the company forward through this process of constant innovation and constant exploration. Yeah, I mean, I think you can do the base work to really try to minimize the rate of fail and to have more hits, which I think we've done through the process that we run to identify startups in the pilot. So, for example, in our marketing program last year, we ran 10 pilots with 10 startups. You know, the typical VC rate might be, what, 10%, something like that. We had like three to four of those solutions scaling up. So just because we invest a lot of time to really anchor our business on the needs, what we're looking for and the whole vetting process, we like to say that we try to minimize the rate of fail, but we actually don't want to scale up 10 solutions. We want to select the three to four that are really great and scale those up. And the, the remaining aren't failures, but that's part of the learning process to get there. It sounds like Jenny and Shannon, you both brought up great points about how the revolution we were talking about, you know, five minutes ago is really in the perception of innovation that we've learned over the pandemic, as Shannon pointed out, in terms of how fast you really can go, what it means to be agile and failing fast to learn fast. Would you say being part of the innovation at a huge CPG company that D to C is top of mind for you right now? Or what are some of the hot topics or trends that keep coming up for you? Definitely. I think when you say D to C, I, I think more broadly across having that first party relationship. I think owning data and establishing first party relationship, given that typically we're not the retailer, so we're not the natural point where you would have that first party relationship. But in the past, we've relied on external third parties for consumer and shopper data, but increasingly we're trying to develop that direct relationship. We are trying to collect data, but do it in a way that obviously abides by all the privacy regulations and Mm -hmm. concerns, but do it in a way that builds trust with that particular consumer. And as we were talking about before, has a value exchange that is actually valued by that consumer. So we're thinking through the different technologies that can enable us to form that relationship, collect that data, and then manage and 
enable us to use that data in a way that actually benefits the consumer as well as us. That's a key theme. And along with that goes personalization at scale. So all the different tools that enable us to use that data effectively. I think some of the other key themes that are coming through, are we want to increasingly own more of the end-to-end process around planning and automation. And we're looking for solutions that we can incorporate and integrate into those platforms. And those platforms have to be super easy to use in order for it to be adopted by large company like PepsiCo. And then another key one that I would think about is just reaching people, reaching consumers and shoppers increasingly in places where they are. You know, I think a lot of people are moving away from traditional media channels and traditional formats where we used to reach them in a much more blanket way and finding them where they are, whether it's you know, the 3 billion people who are now playing games or whether it's people moving into ad-free formats and streaming and doing it in a way that's not invasive and doesn't, you know, bother them and actually may even enhance their experience and speaking to them authentically in that environment. But I think those are some of the key themes. And I think generally, you know, when I think about innovation and how it's my thinking around innovation has evolved over the significant amount of time I've been at PepsiCo. As a company, when I joined PepsiCo, innovation was so anchored in the product, like in the food and beverage and what we were going to introduce to the market. And during the last couple of decades, it's now really become about every single part of our business and how we do things, how we operate, every single part of those things areas we constantly need to think about and challenge and rethink the way we do things, even the the fundamental business model. That for me has felt like the revolution in the world of innovation. It's just everything about the business now. The last point there of the fact that there is no part of the business now that is excluded from the idea that it can innovate, that it can change. The catalyst for that, obviously, was the increasing digitization of the business in general and how that triggered reform, you know, even in back office accounting departments, um, which, you know, historically never changed in many Mm -hmm. ways. A lot of organizations struggle with the idea that it's all of those organizations changing at the same time and the coordination necessary to then formulate a strategy on top of that of where they're going to apply their focus. And I think many organizations get lost in the noise of all of the churn that's happening in each of those areas in that way. So organizations that get that right have kind of cracked the holy grail. But again, to your point, it's a constant and ongoing process. It's not something possibly like our pandemic that will not end. It's just going to be reframed in a different way. So that's super interesting. The other part I'd love to talk about just quickly, if we can go back to, was your comment related to a large marketer and advertiser such as PepsiCo having to rethink some of the traditional strategies of how it attracted and retained customers. A lot of the focus is around trying to meet customers where they are, right? To fish where the fish are, so to speak. How do you balance the need for the measurement side of your advertising business to be able to say that these things transacted and pulled this through with the idea now that a lot of the 
focus around the marketing is much more about community and brand building, and therefore, by definition, less measurable in some ways. What's PepsiCo's thinking in that area these days? We um, are very measurement forward and also trying constantly to tie things back to sales. So, you know, while there is the whole funnel of marketing and some of it tends to be more upper funnel than lower funnel, we are constantly looking for solutions that can help us, you know, get to those lower funnel measurements of sales attribution. You know, it's a little challenging for us because while we have increased our portion of sales going through e-commerce and digitally, even through our DTC channels, the bulk of our sales still remains at retail in physical locations. So it's difficult for us to often tie the effectiveness of our ad spend and media spend directly to dollars. But actually, leading into the Innova session, we are highlighting a select use case where we've never had ROI measurements in the world of sports sponsorships previously. So being able to tie our sponsorship of a certain NFL team or NBA team to particular retail sales. And we have a, we're working now with a startup solution that's enabling us to get a pretty strong read on what incremental sales at retail a certain sponsorship is leading us to. So we're, to answer your question, we are very much focused on that. We have internal models that we've built called the ROI engine that constantly tries to measure the impact on sales. And, you know, whenever we do partner with external partners on different elements of media, we're trying to get a good read on that. If ever there was a plug to listen to the Innova conference, (laughs) we gave one there for a hot new startup measuring sports marketing type attributions. So there it is. Awesome. That's exactly what I was going to say as well, because I I would love to hear more about it, but we have to save that for the event. (laughs) So if you're listening, go ahead. You can register, by the way, at valtech-innova.com. I'll repeat that again at the end. But Shannon, and Jenny, you both have touched on this already a little bit, but there's a lot of difficulties sometimes when you're trying to innovate across multiple organizations and have one strategy at the top. What are some actions you guys have seen, whether that's with retailers or brand companies, to weave innovation into the fabric of the culture? How come I don't get the cream puff questions like Jenny gets? (laughs) Again, I'm a big believer in that A lot of this starts at the top in the executive team and their willingness to create a culture of experimentation, testing, learning, and constant innovation. It must be, and and partially it's my own, I would call it corporate blindness that I have since I've never worked in an organization that is the size of PepsiCo. And I can understand managing a traditional business, not traditional business, but a business that is extremely well-established it's very hard to deviate out of the swim lane sometimes because you have a tried and tested playbook that works. It's just you're trying to map it, I think, these days to a world and a pace of technology that is extremely challenging. And so I go back to the examples of retailers, just to mention one vertical, where I think they're trying to create those cultures and do that well. You know, you come up with your obvious examples of Nike, for example, who has been extremely early on in leveraging the technology and tying the data part together to create a loyalty of their brand and of their customers that is exemplary in its approach. And I think it's all because they were willing to take some risks uh, very early on 
to try new things. And I think that really is the backbone of success of a brand or a retailer is, do you have the set of leadership that is open to the changes that are taking place in our environments these days? I don't know, Jenny, that you probably have a way better answer than that than I do. No, no, I, I think I would just add to that. So I think leadership and the culture coming down from the top is critically important. I think you've got to marry that with some like structures that kind of embed that throughout the organization, whether it's tying things to people's incentives or whether it's allocating a certain percent of the budget towards things that are innovation forward. I think there are certain areas of our business where we say, okay, 10 to 15 to 20% of our budget is ring marked for innovation purposes. So, you know, to your point, because we're a massive business and we're focused on running the day-to-day and just making sure that machine is constantly going for us to dedicate a part of our focus and keep dedicated to innovation through the different quarters and the performance that we need to deliver each quarter requires a significant amount of cultural push, but also just organizational as well. And then I think the only other thing I would add is that, you know, as we work through the business, it's been a sandwich of the top down, but also from the bottom up as well. So, you know, really embedding it into the culture of the people who are on the ground, actually implementing the pilots and driving scale up, as well as constantly messaging from the C-suite constantly down that this is a critical part of our business. So I think those are the only things that I would add to your comment. How how successful, or if at all, is PepsiCo in harnessing the ideas of your existing employee workplace? Do you use an internal tool for ideation, idea generation, where there's you know, vote up, vote down the ideas, look yeah. at them in a process yeah. and series. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about this competition, internal competition that we've got live at the moment. It's actually from our CEO who right. puts so it out through the it's business. focused innovation uh, yeah, it's, it's ba- yeah. basically, you know, the next big idea, the startup idea, and we have, you know, people who can invest fake money into it. Yeah. So it's definitely, there's a culture of innovation increasingly coming throughout the business. And then, you know, as we work with startups, we welcome through the organization any leads that they have. It's not just about, you know, us having our external network through the VC and others in the ecosystem. It's about everybody. So let's all bring it in, put it through the one funnel so we don't have siloed efforts here and there and everywhere on lots of little things. So really harnessing the power of our 290,000 employees to get that all going through the same funnel. Right. I think done correctly, that area is an extremely uh, rich garden to harvest because A, they know the business quite well. And, you know, again, Julia, back to one of our central themes here of evolution, revolution, you might not get revolution out of those ideas, but you're going to get a whole bunch of evolutionary ideas of how to optimize the business from all aspects and all angles. And I think that's an incredibly fertile ground if companies can figure out how to harness that one. Mm -hmm. I agree. And once they figure it out, like you guys have, Jenny, you've scaled over 100 pilots. What are some challenges that, you know, the retailers who are listening or the brand companies, what would you recommend they consider when they're scaling or maybe before they begin scaling based on your experience? What's worked well for us? Definitely, I agree with you from the beginning that scale up is a major challenge. I think we've worked out kind of the secret source of getting pilots into markets now and getting that done quickly. Still, Every scale-up requires a lot of pre-planning, a lot of different areas with the business involved. 
a few things that have worked well for us. One is having the business on board. The business is actually going to be responsible for scale up. Having them involved and owning the process and owning the decision-making process from the pilot stage. So they're the ones putting together the business recommendation post the pilot and then helping us you know, shape the scale up and lead that process has really been a key factor, I think. I think the other thing has to be that it has to, because, you know, often it's one thing to put in a new platform or put in a new tool into a platform, but it's the other thing. The key part of scale up is getting adoption, right? And getting people to use it. So it has to be simple to use. Everyone's busy, as you mentioned, running their day jobs. And if something takes a month for you to learn how to use it, no one's going to use it. It has to be intuitive. It has to have a simple UI, UX, and just be super easy to use because a huge part of it is just behavioral change and culture change. And then another thing, which is a little bit more tactical, but I think equally important is, you know, having some budget support for the first year. I mean, I think this is getting really tactical, but where scale up has been effective for us, a lot of businesses don't know exactly the solution next year that we're going to be recommending to scale up. So if we put aside some money to centrally fund a portion of that scale up in the first year before it starts to really demonstrate impact in the business, I think that's been helpful for us in a few select cases as well. Do any of the startups currently in the pipe offer solutions to the cargo ships and ports problem of logistics that we're all facing right now? Uh, You know, that is a big challenge for us. I mean, especially these days, everyone faces the same macroeconomic conditions, right? Supply chains are massive issues. So we are actually halfway through a supply chain program, but you know, prior to COVID, a lot of the focus was on micro-fulfillment and robotics and those types of areas. But, you know, that's a key question. Yeah. Wish I had the exact answer. <laughs> that's a tough one. I will say, Rethink Retail put out our commerce report for 2025 and by far the biggest challenge that executives in the CPG grocery space ranked was supply chain for the past, you know, a couple of years. And, and even now, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But Jenny, you said, you know, the bulk of sales is still in retail. I do want to bring this back a little bit to retail really quickly, because actually Shannon said something that stuck with me a while back and he was like, the store of the future, I think you said you're interacting with the store today, but the store of the future is interacting with you. The idea of connected stores. Shannon, is this something that you can talk a little bit about, like your vision of where the retail store is headed as everyone's excited to hopefully get back to shopping in person more often, ramping up for the holidays? Hopefully we don't have a supply chain issue. Get shopping early if you're listening because it's coming. But uh, what do you think? Yeah. So I want to make sure I, I can get a little philosophical on this one because I really do feel like Our primary definitions of a store and shopping are changing. The primary raison d'etre, if you will, of a store historically was transaction and fulfillment. And that's no longer the place for many of the stores right now. The store is, you know, to quote Doug Stevens, is the opportunity for the media and for the opportunity to drive customer engagement and new customer touch points into a product set and not worry about the fulfillment side of that equation. Now, that depends on what category you are within the broad spectrum of retail. Obviously, you know if you're in the beverage market, there is an immediacy of fulfillment that is necessary there as well in some cases. 
But I really do feel like one of those changes that we're seeing right now is what we at Valtech sort of call a kit of parts, if you will, where the physical store is less focused on a particular set format in a particular set piece. And by that, I mean, stores are becoming hubs for community. They become the way where you potentially go and take classes. Stores are becoming the lunch and learn drop-in centers. They're, so they're becoming multi-format in some ways. And so the modularity of the floor footprint and the store layout is becoming increasingly digital because digital gives you the flexibility to change out a lot of the format that exists inside a a store. And in many ways, the conversations that we're having with our retailers continue to go back to this idea of running a store is equivalent to running a theater where you are putting on a production for a set amount of time. You have your lighting, your stage, your front of house, your back of house. But in six months, you're going to be putting a new production through there, whether that means a new brand or whether that means a new take on an existing brand. I think we continue to see retailers pushing the boundaries of what they mean by a store. And it continues to be super exciting. Yeah. I mean, I think that world is, while we're not necessarily as close on the retail side, we're definitely interested in what's happening in the retail space. And we stay very close because... We want to see how we can tap into those changing experiences in the store to potentially have a direct relationship with that shopper while they're in the store and hit them at the right moment with the right offer or the right incentives or the right brand association. But it's really interesting because, you know, as you were talking about how the world is changing, there are stores that are cl- malls that are closing down by the day. And then there yes. are companies like Amazon that are opening stores and going into that format where typically in the past they've been a little less active there. But Well, you're seeing this tension between what a year or so as we got into the 2019, you know, the the death of retail, the retail Mm -hmm. apocalypse, because the physical format stores, I think, unless there is a level of adoption and innovation on how they're thinking about it, the idea that the store is essentially a fulfillment warehouse in the most desirable and expensive real estate markets in many of the cities just doesn't Mm -hmm. make any sense anymore. When you can have a toothbrush delivered in downtown Manhattan inside an hour from an Amazon courier, The fulfillment side of the transaction and the fact that, quite honestly, even in most store footprints, one third of that floor pay is dedicated to housing product. It's hilarious to me that on Fifth Avenue or Melrose, where you're talking about a very expensive and desirable real estate, that essentially it's dedicated to boxes. And so we need to think about how we are introducing products into consumers and how that customer journey really works and what they're looking for when they go shopping. Many times we go shopping for fulfillment, but many times we're going shopping for the social experience of what you get when you're there. I mean, especially these days, I remember in COVID, my experience, it's it's much more experiential. The only place you could go out was to go buy something at Target, right? (laughs) Yeah. The COVID, post-COVID, whatever we want to call it this day, it better be a damn good experience to get me out of the house to be able to warrant that. And if it's just fulfillment, 
I have found a better way. Exactly. This increasing rise of experiential retail, you know, which sometimes loosely gets dropped into shopping, I think is going to be critically important, especially for new brands that are looking to establish a market because the online space, as we know, is an incredibly difficult one to build from scratch. By definition, it means you're playing in a global marketplace. And I think that there are other ways where you have a true, what used to be omni-channel strategy, but at least multi-format strategy, many retailers need to look at and investigate. And I think as part of that multi-format strategy, you want continuity and connectivity across your channels, right? So if I'm the same consumer shopping online and then I walk into the store or vice versa, I want something that I was browsing in the store to pop up into my shopping cart. So that whole idea of continuity of experience is key. We did some great work with Mac Cosmetics where we created something called the Mac Pass, where you went into the store in Queen's And whatever product you picked up, if you scanned it on your phone to get more of it, it was automatically in your profile. You went back, you did anything on the site. Those experiences were still there and linked together. And that's, it seems simple, but those are the types of things, again, to your point, Jenny, about the increasing necessity of personalization in that customer journey is key because there's a level of expectation that it's going to happen. And the more retailers, CPGs, or whoever can do it, the better they will be for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I think on that, it's not personalization just for personalization's sake, but in a way that actually adds value to you and yes. to, you know, Julia and to me in different ways, right? Elicits emotion and all those yeah. things. Yeah. And whatever's sure. yeah. important to you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's specifically with makeup, right? Because sometimes you try something on, you're like, I don't know, maybe. And then later you're like, actually, I did want that. And then you're trying to remember what specific shade it was or something like that. It's crazy. So that's super valuable. Okay, Jenny O of PepsiCo Labs and Shannon Ryan, Executive Vice President of North America for Valtech. Thank you both for joining and I hope to have you on again in the future. Thank you so much for having us and uh, it was super fun. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Julia. And as promised, a quick recap for you on the two upcoming events you should consider attending. One is Innova by Valtech. You can register at valtech-innova.com. That's valtech-innova.com. October 7th and 8th, you'll experience over 20 sessions led by 40 plus executive speakers with over 1,000 of your peers. There have been many registrations, I'm told, so don't sleep on this two-day virtual event. Hear real stories of how leaders evolve digitally 
to create competitive advantages in their markets. That includes who you heard from today, Jenny O, speaking on measuring ROI from sports marketing investments, which has historically been very hard to do and in many cases still is. The second event you can join us for is Lynn Academy on October 6th and 7th. You'll hear from speakers representing a few of our favorites, Facebook, eBay, Forrester, and more. Register today at lynnacademy.com. That's Lynn with two N's, L-I-N-N academy.com. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.